Well, the sprayer is the most important piece of farm equipment. Most, most important? Most used. The stats are the sprayer runs every week of the entire growing season applying one thing or another. We spray mostly herbicides in Saskatchewan, but we also sometimes spray fungicides and insecticides, and we apply fertilizer. Sprayers. All through the sprayer? All through the sprayer, yeah. Is it covering the whole field, the sprayer? or where? The sprayer is, uh, like any piece of farm equipment, is self- it's self-propelled in this case. Oh, but you know, has a motor and a transmission and wheels, and it drives to the field and then drives up and down, drives up and down like any farm equipment would, depending on the swath width. So, you know, a, a cedar, for example, might be sixty feet wide, and so it goes up and down at sixty foot intervals. A sprayer is typically one hundred twenty feet wide, so it goes up and down at one hundred twenty foot intervals, and it covers the whole field. So, what makes it so you have to apply it weekly? Well, you don't have to apply it weekly, uh, but what you have is you have a lot of different fields and you seed them over the course of maybe, let's say, a month for the sake of argument. In the month of May, you would be seeding. And so you have different stages of the crop. So in early June, your early seeded crops are a month old and ready to spray for herbicides. But your last seeded crops are really just maybe even not yet out of the ground. So you have to now stagger your spraying so that the staging is correct. So the staging is correct? Well, different pests. So you have weeds, for example, are susceptible to the herbicide only when they're small. And their, their maximum susceptibility is when they're at a certain stage. And you have to stage that cr- properly. Your crop also is very susceptible to proper staging. Like you might kill your crop if you stage the herbicide wrong. You might be too early or too late. And then the crop will suffer. And so you, you also have uh, yield loss. Like, for example, if the weeds uh, have a lot of time out of the ground in the presence of the crop, where the crop can sense the weeds are there, it adjusts its yield potential based on the presence of the weeds and reduces its yield potential. Even before the weeds compete for water or light, even if there's no shading or crowding, the crop knows the weeds are there and says, I'm not going to yield my full potential because I'm afraid of this potential future competition. Make an adjustment, a physiological adjustment. So what I'm saying is the, the weeds have to be removed before that happens. So the staging is very critical. You might spray your weeds only when they're in this, say, one to three leaf stage, let's say. And after that, the yield loss will likely already have occurred. It's irreversible. You can still remove them, and you should, but you know you haven't really maximized the value of your spray operation. And just, it's the same with insecticides. Like for example, flea beetles and canola are the, the, the canola is very susceptible to flea beetles when it's coming out of the ground in the cotyledon stage. And if the if the cotyledons are defoliated by the flea beetles, let's say they have more than twenty five percent damage, uh, then uh, your yield loss is irreversible. And so you have to remove them before that happens. And then, you know, for, for fungicides, it's even more critical. Fungicides, there's a certain stage in the plant's growth later on where the plants are susceptible to uh, the attack of a, of a fungi, fungal pathogen. And if the fungal pathogen attacks the plants, it's too late to spray against it because uh, most fungicides are not curative. They're just, they're prophylactic, they're, they're protective. So yeah, staging is critical. That's a a really long way of answering the fact that we will be spraying herbicides for the month of June and perhaps into early July. We will then be spraying fungicides or insecticides. Well, maybe already insecticides even in in, in June. We'll be spraying fungicides in July. We'll be starting to desiccate in August. uh, And then we might be top dressing fertilizer throughout the season. What's desiccate? 
desiccate is to uh, basically terminate the crop with a herbicide. So the, you actually then dry the crop down. It's a non-selective herbicide that kills the crop to make harvesting easier. So then the timing is critical for all of these stages. How do you determine the timing? It's through experience and, and the advice of an agronomist. Like most farmers know that the, you know what the timing needs to be. Uh, but you might have to fine-tune it with the help of an agronomist. There might be special herbicides that have special windows that they say, look, you know, you can only apply this herbicide in this growth stage. You can't go outside this for legal reasons. So there could be a label restriction. But like, for example, a herbicide might, uh, you know, it's, it's a pesticide, and uh, you don't want that pesticide present in the plant at harvest time. You want that, pl that plant to be clean so it can be consumed safely. And so we have what's called a maximum residue level, or MRL, and that's determined by the federal government. And they say, you know, we can't exceed this MRL, otherwise we can't market the crops or export them or consume them. So that may mean that the herbicide or the insecticide or the fungicide has to be applied before a certain growth stage so that it ha the plant has time to get rid of it or to metabolize it. So then how do you measure the MRL? Well, we don't measure the MRL on the farm level. It's, it's a spot inspection done by the exporter or the importer. But, you know, grain shipments have been rejected based on exceeding certain levels of products. MRLs are really a, a very important measurement for any importing or exporting nation of agricultural goods. Apples, everything, has, will have samples taken to make sure that pesticide levels are acceptable. That's good to hear, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there, well, so there's random testing, and you actually have to stop at a certain stage. You can't spray anymore. It's for certain products, yeah, for certain products. This is what we call the pre-harvest interval. That means that, you know, you can't, like, let's say the pre-harvest pre interval is 30 days. Let's just say that. So let's say if you expect that you will be harvesting this on the 1st of September, you should not spray later than the 1st of August so that you have your 30 days for the crop to get rid of or metabolize or break down that pesticide that you, that you applied. Some, some intervals are tighter, some are longer. It depends. What's the tightest interval? I don't actually know what the tightest one is. Hmm. But, you know, it could be, yeah, it could be, uh, it could be just a week. Like, for example, there's a product called Reglone. Uh, it's a desiccant, and it's used on pulse crops, so lentils, peas, chickpeas, because they, they tend to, you know, dry or mature unevenly. And you might want to just even all that out. And they also have typically weeds growing in them. So they're green and make it difficult to harvest. So you will desiccate them really just maybe a week before harvest. And then you'll harvest them. And it's, that's a safe and accepted practice. I don't have the, I don't know, I don't remember the MRL or the, or the pre-harvest you <laughs> yeah. know, interval well, for, we'll for regular. We'll Google that later. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at the broad spectrum of it. So you need to hit it with that herbicide early so that the plant doesn't already give up. Yeah. And then afterwards, you're going to hit it with the fungicide so the fungus doesn't grow on it. That's right. And then you also have to make sure that you stop in time for that harvest window. That's right. So what are the main complexities with that system? Well, the complexity is that we have, we're really trying to, it's, it's a really interesting question because I've focused my whole career on that complexity. Basically, we have, we're, we're walking on a knife's edge of, of inputs, to be honest. So we have to be efficient. We have to be able to spray enough acres per day so that 
we don't get behind so that the crop doesn't or the weeds don't grow faster than we can keep up with the spraying operation. And that means that anything that drags on our productivity has to be optimized. And the biggest one in this case is water. So we use water as a diluent of all of our pesticides. And about 99%, give or take, percent of the, of the tank contents in the sprayer is water. And 1% is pesticide. About that. That's about the ratio. It, it can actually be 99.5, 99.7 water and just a few, basically, maybe <laughs> like in a, in a thousand gallon, like a 5,000 liter tank, you might put only this, you know, I'm holding oh, up five, a jar here. 500 milliliters. A, a 500 mil of a, of a certain product might be all that's necessary. So you don't actually need to store a ton of pesticide on site then? You know, it's a, it's a significant amount. It, it, add, it does add up. <laughs> and not yeah. all pesticides have such low use rates. Uh, some are a little higher than that, of course. But... Um, on the whole, you know, you don't want to have to haul a lot of water. That's the limiting factor because you'll be emptying a sprayer tank about every 30 minutes or so, depending on the size of the sprayer. So if you're spraying all day, you're filling your tank maybe, let's say, 10 times. Let's just say that. And so you can't afford to fill it 20 times because you have to haul the water. The water might come from far away because it has to be a certain quality of water. It can't just be, you know, any old water. It has to have a certain cleanliness to it. All the, the minerals in the water have to be known at least. And so you are using as little water as you can. You also have to, uh, you know, atomize the spray in a way that the droplets don't drift off target. You don't want to make them too fine. You know, you want to, don't want to miss them too much. And so you, you will increase droplet size to make sure that doesn't happen, but you can't increase the droplet size too much because otherwise you don't have enough droplets. Right, as you can under, probably understand, yeah. if you use just a little bit of water, you have to still have a certain droplet density so that the weeds, which are possibly just a square centimeter or so, actually get hit. So what we're doing is we're saying, all right, let's use just enough water so we can get the job done, but let's not use so little water that we don't get coverage because we still have to have large drops for drop for drift control, and you know then there's other environmental factors like. You know, if it's hot and dry out, the water evaporates quickly. We don't want that either. So we, we're trying to sort of optimize these inputs so that we can be productive. We also have to drive a certain speed down the field. You know, like the faster you will take, you know, drive your sprayer, obviously the more acres you will cover. But that also burns more fuel. It's also harder on the machine. It's harder on the operator. And so you, it, the wear and tear factor comes in. So you want to just sort of make sure you don't drive too fast. Let's still get the work done. And so you're always trying to find how can I get more done without spending a lot of money? Yeah, you want to optimize that process. Yeah. So how are you managing all these variables? Well, the industry is pretty mature. I mean, we've been spraying pesticides for 150 years. And so I think the the knowledge is there. I mean, the pesticides have changed. The, the weeds, the pests have changed. The application equipment has certainly changed. But the principles that we just talked about, using sort of the, the optimal amount of water to meet your drift and coverage goals and your productivity goals, that hasn't changed. So that's still, that's still a priority for everyone. So the variable is the same throughout. So we've been adapting to it. What's the latest technology that's helped us along the way? Well, it's been a really busy time technology-wise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with my favorite one right away. It's spot spraying. So we've, we've now been selling sprayers in Saskatchewan and abroad that have cameras on them that use artificial intelligence to identify weeds in a crop and then telling the nozzle 
where the weeds are and which ones to spray and which ones not to spray. And it all happens basically instantaneously. So you're really maximizing your input then. Yeah. It's, it's an emerging technology. Uh, there's only about a handful of the sprayers in Canada right now, these sprayers. But it has great promise. If you think about it, you know, weeds are not uniformly distributed in the field, right? Just like they're not uniformly distributed in your lawn there's certain pla- or your garden. There's certain places where they're denser and some places where there aren't any. But you don't know that in advance because it changes. Every year is a little different, right? And so you are basically forced to broadcast spray the entire field because you just don't know where the weeds are. And you can't afford to scout for weeds because you would never get done, right? You, like the traditional scouting, which is to walk the field or to, to drive over it with a quad and make a map. You can't do that. It's too time-consuming. But with these cameras that are mounted on booms, uh, it takes care of that and does the scouting, the mapping, and the activation of the spray nozzle automatically for you. And then you save maybe 75%, depends on the situation, but people are reporting back that they're saving, let's say, 50 to 75%. Some people even report a 90% saving of their pesticide based on just spraying the weeds that are already there. Well, you're spraying what needs it. That's right. So what variables does the AI take into account? Okay, that's that's a hard one. So that's secret sauce. It's, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the algorithm. It's an AI algorithm, but it's um, it's a complicated algorithm. But in <clears throat> we've been trying to find ways of detecting weeds with cameras for decades. And the first system we used was uh, an NDVI, which is kind of a, a greenness factor. It's kind of like a ratio of red to near infrared. And so it, that ratio changes whether it's a green color or a brown color or basically non-green, sort of anything that's not a plant. And NDVI is used in agriculture. It's used, it's, I mean, we get it from satellites and, and things. And it, it sort of gives you an indicator of, of crop health, for example, or nitrogen status, that kind of a thing. It can also be used to find plants. So a non-selective spot sprayer emerged in Saskatchewan. It was built in Australia, but the first one I visited was in 1992. It was in the and um, it was uh, Kelly Johnson, a better Biagro in Assiniboia. He bought the first spot sprayer in Canada. And it was a sprayer that was mounted on a flexicoil that was, or a unit that was mounted on a flexicoil sprayer that was built in Saskatoon. And it was able to see weeds in a field that had not yet been seeded. So that's, that would be your pre-seed burn-off operation. So in Saskatchewan, before we seed, uh, we will spray the fields so that the weeds are dead at the time of seeding because our seeding implement did no longer tills the ground. It no longer pulls out the weeds because we're direct drilling for soil conservation and water conservation. We just knife it in basically. So there's these, just these thin narrow strips of seed rows, right? And in between the seed rows is untouched ground. And if weeds are there, you have to get rid of them some other way. So the herbicides have been doing that job. And that's where the first spot spray was able to say, all right, I'm going to save you, uh, you know, so let's say 75% of your pre-seed burn-off herbicide because I'm only going to spray the weeds. Yeah, well, you can stop it earlier in that stage because you have full visibility of the field then. Yeah, and you don't have, like this, this system does not differentiate between different plants. It just says, that's a plant. I'm going to spray it. Okay. Right, so you do it before seeding. So every everything that's green gets sprayed. It'll, yeah. it'll only be weeds. But if the crop was already up, it would also spray the crop because it couldn't tell that it was something different. 
we then tried to find, okay, how can we tell weeds apart from, from crop plants? How do we do that? And we tried, you know, hyperspectral uh, sort of wavelengths of light and see whether there has different signatures. And we tried shape recognition, but we, didn't have the com we did not have the computing power for that. And, and now we are doing what's called a convolutional neural network. Um, it's basically a large algorithm that teaches itself how things uh, differ, are, are different. So you, you, you do have to train it, but um, it uses large mathematical equations, hundreds of millions of parameters. Are you into math? Love it. Okay. Math surrounds us. <laughs> yeah. So the other day I was thinking, you know, ChatGPT. Well, that's a, a large language model. It has about a trillion parameters, right? Uh, the parameters, the parameterization of convolutional neural networks in egg are about 100 or so million. It's a, I'm not exactly sure because it's a trade secret, but it could be more. It could be hundreds of millions. And I thought, you know, I, I have a computer science friend, and I said to him the other day, I said, uh, you know, I, I tried to figure out what a 100 million parameter model, how long that would be if you wrote it out by hand. It has, you know, I had to simplify the, the question quite a bit. Well, it's it's 100 million parameters. I said, I just used a one centimeter per parameter, right? If, if you're in hand script, right? And of course, the la later parameters would be much longer than that because you'd have to find a way to make them unique, right? But whatever. I said, that's a different problem. Well, it turns out it's a thousand kilometers. It's a thousand kilometers of equation. And these spot spraying computers will solve that equation uh, once every 100 uh, milliseconds. They take a picture. So 0.1 of a they, second. They'll take that picture and they will solve, they will do, they will run matrices throughout the pixel array and solve for that equation. They have a lot of work that they do but they have to do it in 100 milliseconds because that's how much time they have from the time that the sprayer sees it because the camera's looking ahead about a meter, maybe two meters, until the boom comes and the spray and the nozzle has to, has to be on or, on or not on. The decision has to be made. So a billion a second. Yeah, Every exactly. Second. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you got that right. Is that crazy? Well, it's it's quite astounding. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely astounding. It's absolutely astounding. I, You know, if you look at these sprayers, they are full of, are you a gamer? Not since I've had kids. Okay. <laughs> well, you know that the, the gaming GPU of choice is the NVIDIA chip, right? Yeah. These sprayers are full of NVIDIA chips. So there might be 12 GPUs centers on the boom. You look along a boom of a, of a spot sprayer, a modern spot sprayer using AI. They're full of really expensive computer hardware along the boom. And each of these boxes might take care of one or two cameras, that's it. This sprayer probably has the most computing power of anything that I've ever seen. You know, it's much more than a server in, a, in an office complex. It's, uh, it's a much greater computing power. It's really it's amazing. It's a big monumental scale. I think so. I mean, you know, these don't come cheap, but um, the, the economics are there. The return on investment is actually pretty good. It's sort of a buy once, cry once situation then. It's what? A buy, buy once, cry once. Yeah, exactly. So you're exactly. Get <laughs> and you forget about it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, the, I mean, farmers do math closely. And, you know, with your conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago with David Yee, you, you know, you would have heard much about that. But 
you know, a, a sprayer typically might cost, let's say an average sprayer right now, new off the lot, typical size, larger sprayer, obviously, it was going to cost about $800,000. And the the additional artificial intelligence and the cameras and stuff will probably add another two hundred or so, two hundred or three hundred. You'll make that savings back in a few years because yes. you're seventy five percent more efficient. That's right. Yeah, depends on the size of the farm, depends what you're spraying, but yes, but up to up, you have a definite ROI. It's in fact, it's one of the few pieces of farm equipment that has an ROI. You know what I mean? It's like most pieces of equipment are expensive, but you you have to have them. And they just depreciate once you get them. They don't pay for themselves, but you can't do without them. Yeah. Well, this is an investment where you get your money back on that investment. Well, you can visually see you're getting your money back yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could it could become a big deal, you know. And there's a number of players in the market, and it's really early days. Yeah. But that's probably the most exciting thing happening these days. Yeah. Well, we're saving up to seventy five percent input. So how effective is it in determining the weeds? Currently. Yeah, that, that's the question all my farmer clients have. You know, because, you know, you have to have good weed control. That's why you spray. The weeds are potentially competitive with the crop. They might also be resistant, and you might have to, you know, you may be spraying a special cocktail that gets them, and you don't really want them to survive because if, if a resistant weeds, a weed spreads in the, in the field, it's obviously going to make the problem worse. So the, the farmers have a very high threshold for performance. They want, probably want 97%. Let's say I'm picking a number that's high, but not 100, of their weeds removed. And if the, if the spot spurs can't do that, they will fail in the marketplace because they, you, know, you don't want to have to spray again. You don't have the time to spray again. It costs $10 per acre or 5 to $10 per acre to run a sprayer across the field. Just depreciation and fuel and labor, right? The question is, how small the weed can can these things see? Uh, what if the weed is hidden under a leaf? What do you do then? Uh, how do you deal with all of these situations? And that is where we're currently paying a lot of attention. Okay, so we're looking at that and trying to solve that problem to a sufficient manner. Exactly. Farmers will want to have some assurance that the system works reliably. And as any technology matures, that information becomes more available to them, either by talking to their neighbors or reading the literature. It becomes common knowledge. You know how in farming, you know, there's, there isn't a textbook, right? It's all knowledge. It's all cultural knowledge, institutional knowledge, knowledge passed on through either generations or amongst neighbors or friends. And very little of it is ever written down, to be quite honest. You know, there really isn't actually a textbook, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so you learn by doing... You learn by listening. What have you learned along this spraying journey? (laughs) I I would say probably my most important lesson is that, you know, I'm a scientist. I spend most of my career conducting original research. But I also want my research to be usable. Probably the most important thing in my business has been to communicate effectively. You know, and to communicate effectively, you have to know who you're talking to. You have to know what they're thinking about and what their problems are. You have to understand them. And if you don't understand them, then the communication is going to suffer because they can tell right away whether you understand them, right? It doesn't take long. It takes a, it takes a few sentences, and they'll know, they'll know whether you get them. And if you don't get them, you're going to have a hard time convincing them of anything that you think they ought to be doing. But if you, have, if you put in the time to understand what they're struggles are, what they're thinking about, what their problems are, 
what just happened to them, what the weather's been like on the farm this year, and you communicate that effectively, that you understand where they're at. Now you, now you have a line of communication open. That has been the most important thing, to be honest. So you've come at it from a point of trying to understand. Yeah. You know, sometimes when people ask me, you know, like you might have the elevator talk and they might say, you know, what do you do for a living? I say, yeah, my, my full-time job is to try to understand farming. That's my full-time job. I am absolutely, I absolutely <laughs> immerse myself in farming it's infinitely interesting. It's diverse. You meet great people. And, the, you know, I'm curious about farming. Having spent my whole life in farming, I grew up on a farm. But having spent my whole life on, uh, you know, in the farming business, I'm, I am still very, very curious about farming. So you can't help it. spent your whole life with it. What still surprises you? It's, you know, what still surprises me is really just the... Um, the adaptability that you have to have as a farmer to deal with ever-changing conditions and to to think both long-term and short-term to make... Do you remember, you know, ever, ever uh, hear of the book, uh, the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? I never read the book myself, but I heard of the title. Yeah, okay. I've heard the title as well. I've never read it either. <laughs> All right. There's one thing I know about this book. Somewhere in this book, there's a matrix, Okay. Right, I'm going to describe the Matrix to you. Do you know, you know the Matrix I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I've never read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's it's a it's a two by two, and on the top row is urgent and not urgent, and on the side is important and not important. So you have four different solutions, right? You have urgent, unimportant tasks, and then it goes down to non-urgent, important tasks, right? And the, the lesson here is we spend most of our time doing urgent but unimportant tasks, like answering emails and getting back to people right away, urgency, 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 but strategically probably not that critical. And we, we always park the unurgent but very important strategic tasks. We park them somewhere for the future. Yeah, I'll plan that later when I have more time. Well, you never have time. If you're a farmer, you have to do both. Like there's absolute urgent tasks. They're weather dependent. You have windows of opportunity. You have to jump on them. You have to do the right thing at the right time or else you've lost something, right? You have to spray the right product at the right time to protect your crop, for example, in the context of this conversation. But you also have to plan for the future. You have to say, well, my soil health, what is it like? What do I need to do? What kind of equipment do should I invest in the future to preserve my soil health? Is, it, is tillage good? Uh, is, is my fertilizer regime good? Is my crop rotation good? These are long-term goals. And so farmers have to balance those goals very effectively to remain viable. And, you know, they have to do so many things at the same time. I mean, I, I have one regret, and that's that I'm not a farmer. I would love to be able to tackle that. So then what's in the important non-urgent category well probably succession so you know i think uh, every farmer from an early age when they start having children a farm family they you know the parents would say you know would make a decision whether they want their kids to farm or not right and i think you'd want the farm business to continue probably well you started it for a reason yeah it's a good life yeah it's a good way to live and it's a good way to make a living you know and it can be a good living and so you, you know, you sometimes, some of the pictures I see on social media, you know, are, you know, the quote future farmer, the hashtag or something like that, you know, where the, the kids watching mom and dad farm and mom and dad 
hope that they're going to be a farmer. Now the question is, as they grow up, how do you keep them on the farm, given that there's a lot of other things out there too, right? Yeah. So, so that's a lot. That's one example of a long-term thing that they would have to think about. What do you think? Let's try not to have hope. Let's find a strategy. What do you think the strategy is for succession? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, and then, of course, the, the resource. You know, I often, when I fly, for example, I, I'll look down on the land and I'm fascinated with the geology of Western Canada and the sort of the, the you know, the, all the scarring that the last ice age left and all the, 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 the sort of geological features that are evident of that. And, and when you're flying at whatever height you're flying in a, in a plane, you know, you, it, the perspective is that, you know, we really only have a few inches of topsoil here. We really only have about half a foot of a horizon in Saskatchewan, well, in Western Canada. Yeah. So what does that topsoil mean? What do you what are we talking about? Well that's about the part where all the biology happens. That's where the organic matter typically is. That's where the microbes are. So we only have a foot of that. Yeah, we have a lot of soil, but yeah. you know, it's divided into different horizons, A horizon, B, and so on. And some of them are really just substrates, right? They're not able to support life, uh, like plant life because they don't have fertility or they don't have uh the features that, that a plant needs, and also the roots might not be able to reach them, right? So when the topsoil is uh, was built over over thousands of years. It has, you know, a, a single-digit percent organic matter in Saskatchewan. The organic matter's been declining ever since we plowed the grasslands under 100 years ago. It's coming back, but, you know, you have to think about the long-term sort of fertility and ability of that soil to produce crops. And that has a lot to do and has really well everything to do with how it's managed today. Right. So, so that's that's a very big long term goal that a farmer would have. How can we manage it to sustain it for the next hundred then if it's declining currently? Organic matter declines because of oxidation. Like we we brought oxygen into the system by by tillage and the organic matter gradually just becomes carbon dioxide. Microbes eat it, becomes carbon dioxide. So we lose it over time. We some of the most Powerful practices in Saskatchewan have been sort of the adoption of conservation tillage. That's probably one of the big two or three technologies that we've contributed to the to the, to the world. It was actually basically commercialized in Saskatchewan. So, what's conservation tillage? So, if you you know if you go back to the seventies when I grew up on the farm, we used a disker. And so, what the, a disker is a seeding implement that uses curved discs to sort of turn the soil over. It's kind of like a mini plow. Okay. And the disker required this soil to be fairly loose and friable. Like it didn't have a lot of ability to uh, penetrate dense stubble, for example. So typically to make a disker work in the spring, you had to have fall tillage. You had to break up the clods and, and get rid of some of the stubble in the fall with the cultivator. You overwinter. In the spring, you will then turn that soil over and put seed and fertilizer underneath and then you had to settle the soil back because it was very loose and fluffy, and you had to harrow it. So you had to drag a piece of tillage equipment over it with harrow tines. And what they did is they broke up the clods and they settled the soil back down and made sure there was no air so it wouldn't dry out so fast. Well, that you know, those processes lost a lot of moisture, and in the dry years, when it became windy because there was no crop residue left, would create soil erosion because it's just unprotected land un unprotected land and you stirred the bottom up and now it's susceptible, susceptible. so it's susceptible to you know uh, rainfall washing it off wind blowing it off 
And even just the act of tillage can erode soils. Even if it doesn't move far, it moves a little bit, but it moves a little bit every year, right? So it ends up being a long distance. <laughs> well, it adds up. And that's how, that's why some of our knolls, some of the tops of our hills are er eroded away. Some of that is just simply from, from tillage erosion, right? And so the innovation was to find a way to seed into land without having fall tillage or turning the land over completely. And that is the direct seeding or the zero till revolution. And what the, the implements, the new implements are basically then tines or discs that just create a narrow opening spaced about 10 or 10 to 15 inches, depending on the implement. And they just create a little slit and you drop your seed into that slit and they create a different slit and you drop your fertilizer into that slit. And then they close them again with a packer wheel. And at the end of the seeding operation, Sometimes when it's done well, you can't actually tell very easily that that field has actually been disturbed. The stubble is still standing for the most part. It looks a little different. You know, you can tell. But it's certainly not knocked over and black. Oh. Yeah. So then it's these discs that are in a V-shape? Could or? be in a V-shape. Could be a double disc with a V-shape. Or it could be a hoe, which is like basically a, just a vertical tine that, that just drags through the ground. Okay, you know, and, 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 and rips it open. Yeah. All right. Different then, kinds of approaches. Yeah. Then the seed goes in, mm -hmm. and then you put fertilizer beside the seed? or where You can't have fertilizer. You can, you can have some fertilizer with a seed, but not too much because it'll burn the seed. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So then where do you have to place the fertilizer? Uh, you know, a little bit below, a little bit to the side. But not, it, directly, could, could be, but yeah, not directly touching that seed. An inch is enough. Okay. Yeah. But uh, no direct contact. No direct contact. Some people will do inter-row banding, so that'll, you know, if you say for have a 12-inch row width you might every second row you might have a right in between those two rows you might have just a fertilizer placement and then the roots find that fertilizer okay yeah they grow over to it yeah and then when you were talking about the sprayers you're spraying the herbicide the pesticides the insecticides and then you're spraying fertilizer too yeah that's called top dressing so for example you might let's say that your 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 crop over the course of the growing season might need a hundred units of nitrogen 100 units could be 100 pounds per acre, 100 kilograms per hectare. Those two numbers are actually quite similar <laughs> after all the conversion said and done. So let's call it 100 units of nitrogen. But you might choose to only put 50 uh, units down at seeding time because you don't know what the weather's going to do. And if it stays dry, your, your cro crop doesn't need the 100. But if it starts to rain, your crop will want the 100 and then you'll maximize your yield. So you've now staged your, your fertilizer application into two to get the crop established and then to see how things go and how they look, what your crop potential is, what the soil moisture is, and then top dress. And top dressing is often done either with a dry fertilizer spreader or with a sprayer that sprays a liquid version of the fertilizer on. Oh, to bring it up to... To bring it up to the 100. 100. Or, yeah, yeah, but something. just figuratively, yeah. we start with 50 just in case yeah. and then... Once it, we find out the weather conditions, mm -hmm. then we can hit it with the other. That's right. Half. So you don't waste it. You don't waste 100 because, you know, that that can have, like this year, for example, things dried up, right? We had a promising May and semi-promising June, and then it all just kind of stopped raining. Yeah. So um, if you were to put a lot of fertilizer down in the spring, you probably wouldn't see the benefit of it now because the plants would have needed more moisture to take advantage of it. Yeah, you've, you've hit it past that minimum effective dose then. And yeah. So that's becoming more popular, and that's one of the reasons that the sprayer is always running, you know? Yeah. So with these sprayers, what surprised you when you first got into spraying? It's, uh, what I like about it from a scientific perspective is that it, it you know, ticks a lot of boxes for me in terms of my curiosity. 
like the spraying business is full of mechanics like iron transmissions and horsepower design you know trust booms and just sort of all that stuff but also physics you know a lot of atomization how does the spray get atomized what are the physical chemical characteristics of the spray mix that might determine how the atomization goes there's also meteorology you know what are the the weather conditions that are conducive to the proper placement of the spray what is an inversion you know what are what are turbulent atmospheric conditions what do they do how can they help or harm there's physiology like the the uptake of the herbicide or the insecticide or the fungicide by the plant how does it get in how do we maximize how much gets in where does it go in the plant like that's cool right can the chemistry of the pesticide how does it work what uh what what enzymes does a molecule like a what enzyme does a herbicide inhibit and and how does a plant end up dying as a result and is that good or bad for people how do we affect the atomization we'll start the top (laughs) (laughs) well atomization is done through a nozzle right and the nozzle has three main purposes the nozzle sort of meters the flow so it's uniformly distributing across the entire boom we have a nozzle every 50 centimeters or every 20 inches there's a nozzle and the nozzle has to cover that gap and a little more so there's a little overlap so a nozzle typically will will cover about a meter of width and in that meter you want to have a uniform distribution of the spray you want to have it in droplets. So, so the first one is, is metering. So all the 72 nozzles on a 120-foot boom have to, be, have to deliver the same flow, right? So every bit of the field gets the same amount. They all have to distribute it the, over the width, as, as I said, for overlap and so on. And then they also have to atomize it into the right droplet size. And it's the atomization part that I really built my career around. I studied atomization. And really, very little else, to be quite honest. And most of the most of the questions I get from farmers to this day are, are revolve around atomization. You know, what is the right droplet size for a particular pesticide? How will it work the best? How will I get the greatest efficiency and the least drift? And that all comes down to atomization. Yeah, it does. Atomization. What what kind of a nozzle are you using? How are you using that nozzle? Um, Wait a minute. So, what kind of nozzle you have, and then how you use it? Yeah, for example, I mean, a nozzle, we typically use hydraulic nozzles. So they are, they're just like on your garden sprayer, right? You know, you, you have a, a flat fan nozzle in agriculture, for example, that creates a tapered flat fan and does that pattern I mentioned. But the spray pressure you, you operate at matters a lot. Higher pressures create finer droplets. A lower pressures create coarser droplets, but also narrower fan angles. But that can be problematic. So there's an optimal pressure range for each nozzle, and that differs by model and by manufacturer. So my clients will want to know, well, you know, what's the right nozzle for me to use, and what pressure should I use it at, and what does that mean for my water volume and my and my travel speed? So I basically, you know, I will help them do basic math, basically, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, and it's, it's a repetitive thing. It's not really on the cutting edge of science, but it's a daily service I provide. Yeah, but it's a service that's required, even though it's not cutting edge. That's right. Yeah, and you know, there's always new people in the business, right? You know, agriculture is very dynamic. There's a lot of people getting jobs in ag, and they might never have sprayed before. So, for example, I do a lot of training of people who are who are fresh, who have come out of school. They just got a job as an agronomist. But maybe they didn't grow up on a farm, and, or even if they did, maybe they didn't do any of the spraying, or maybe it just didn't interest them. But now it, it becomes important to them. So then I, one of my tasks is to help them understand that aspect. And so there's a lot of activity actually all, all around Canada just getting people up to speed on 
nozzle choice, right spray pressure, how to minimize drift, how to maximize deposition, how to get through a canopy, what happens if you drive too fast, what happens if your boom's too high, what happens if you add a certain type of adjuvant. What is that adjuvant? An adjuvant is something you add to the tank to modify it the way the spray liquid behaves. For what purpose? There's basically two types of adjuvants. There's the activators that are like surfactants, so they'll help absorption. And that's like almost all herbicides have activators in them or you add them to them according to the label. And then the second class of uh, adjuvants is uh, sort of a utility modifier, maybe something that reduces spray drift, makes the drops a little bigger, maybe something that changes the pH of the liquid so that it makes the herbicide a little hotter, uh, maybe something that helps clean the, the spray tank afterwards. That's also called an adjuvant. So this adjuvant can reduce drift as well mm -hmm. some do yeah yeah it, it has to do with what we would call in you know collectively the physical chemical characteristics of the of the spray liquid so that means the viscosity the elongational viscosity the surface tension the dynamic surface tension how does that change with the weather conditions because yeah that's outside yeah totally and that's the other thing right you start spraying one you know a certain time in the morning and conditions are great right wind is low it's from the right direction everything looks great all of a sudden the winds come up but you're committed like you have to finish right you're right you've got a lot of infrastructure committed to this task and you're going to get this job finished at least that field and you have to finish and it might have become too windy so then you have to change how you spray right midstream you have to maybe change your spray pressure change your nozzle or add one of these adjuvants to modify make sure you don't harm anything and make sure the spray goes where it's intended you got to make this decision on the fly yeah. with ever changing weather yeah, that's right yeah you're keeping track of it you know you're always you're always watching the weather some sprayers have weather stations built in on, on oh. them and you get live weather reporting in the sprayer cab from the field that you're on it's important yeah yeah does mm -hmm. the that ai we were talking about does that take the weather into account as well not this one no not <laughs> this spot spring but you know ai like i mean ai is so exciting i mean ai is going to improve weather forecasting right yeah like it's crazy what ai can do yeah well with weather forecasting i've seen it 40 percent chance of precipitation i've seen it 60 percent chance of precipitation but i've never seen it 50 percent <laughs> 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 yeah i've never seen an accurate weather forecast yeah. <laughs> that's what i mean I heard the other day that, you know, they were talking about a, a podcast I was listening to. They were talking about um, the the use of AI in weather forecasting. And one of the things they said was, we've been adding about a day of accuracy per decade in the last 50 years. That's pretty good. Yeah, I guess. Depending on how accurate it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, it'll drop off the further out you go. But, you know, that means about 50 years ago, we would have been pretty good with tomorrow, yeah. but not the day after tomorrow. And now we're pretty good till... Well, till... In 50 years, we're going to have 10 full days. And depending on the accuracy... Hopefully, that will continue. I mean, you know, current yeah. trends should never be extrapolated, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but... I just think as technology advances, if we're already doing a billion computations in a second... What's going to happen as it exponentially rises over time? Well, the world's biggest computers are used in weather forecasting, right? I mean, it yeah. is the most challenging task that we have on this planet at this, at this time. Yeah. It's just so complicated. I think the value of having a site-specific, accurate weather forecast, maybe 10 days out for your farm, can AI deliver that? That would have tremendous value.
Yeah, they probably put a subscription service on that one. <laughs> no you, doubt. It'll cost five you. bucks an acre. <laughs> yeah, they, they wouldn't let you buy that out, right? Maybe, maybe 10 in this case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you're having these new students or clients come who've never been on the farm, what, what, are, they, what are they really into? What, what gets them excited? You know, there's so many things. I mean, first of all, the sheer size of this piece of equipment, a sprayer, is is amazing. When you're up close to it, I mean, they are one of the larger pieces of equipment out there now. I guess the complexity in the cab is kind of amazing to them as well. The dashboard has, I know, 100 buttons. I don't know. It's like an aircraft. Like, you have to know which button to push. And there's there's hard buttons and there's software. Obviously, a lot of things that you do are controlled through a, a screen now. So there's a lot of prep. You don't just jump into the sprayer, turn the key, flick a switch and go. You probably have 10 or more minutes of, of time in the cab before you're going to spray. What are you doing in these What are you doing? Minutes? You might be uploading a prescription map where everything is. Maybe you have a, a, a rate specific map for fertilizer, for example. You have to upload that map. Make sure your record keeping is all good. So you identify which field you're doing. You might be uploading that as well. Uh, you might have done that the night before on, on your desktop and then you're just uploading it. And then you just have to wait for everything to boot up, basically. You have to agitate and fill and, I mean, that's a whole other process. But uh, there's there's a fair bit of work that you have in the cab just to get things going. I just visited a farmer a couple of weeks ago with one of those spot sprayers and we got into the cab to go spraying and he turned the thing on. He says, we have a 10-minute wait for all of these NVIDIA supercomputers to boot up and to say i'm running i can see the camera the camera's running i'm calibrating the camera right now that takes time yeah what were you just talking about with the agitating of it the chemicals that we put in the pesticides have different types of formulations many pesticides are not water soluble and so they're formulated in in an oil an emulsion they might be formulated as a granular product on a clay substrate and they have to be agitated. So you, you add them to the tank uh, through an inductor. And then you have to make sure they swish around real good so they mix up and stay mixed. Oh, so do you have to constantly mix it since it... It's done automatically, yeah. Oh, really? But yeah, usually you run, the, you run agitation while spraying usually. And well, then What's the inductor you're talking about? The inductor is just a way of, of sucking chemical in. Like, for example, you know, we talked about efficiency a few minutes ago. And we talked about how we want to save as much time as possible. So... One of the big time draws in spraying is that you stop to fill. And so you're spraying for half an hour. Now you, you stop and you have to find your tender truck or you have to go home to fill or drive the sprayer home and refill that. And that can take time. So, uh, you know, in, in the old way, you know, when, when my dad used to spray, for example, um, we would be glugging individual jugs of chemical into a, a tended lid of the tank and we would be pumping water from a nurse truck uh, into the into the tank. It would take the whole process would take about half an hour. And now we have uh, larger pumps, and we don't glug the chemical into the tank from the top anymore. We have totes. So totes are like um, a large drum or a large box, maybe a thousand liters box of chemical, and we don't even pump it in. We just suck it in. And it's, it's sucked in through what's called an inductor. An inductor is a venturi. So basically, if you're pumping water into the tank, yeah. it cre- the venturi creates suction that, that sucks the, the chemical into the tank at the same time. At that specific concentration. You you put a certain amount in, right? You okay. know that you have, a, let's say you have 1,000 gallons to put in. You know yeah. when you need to put 100 liters of chemical in. Yeah. And then you just close the valve at 100 liters, right? Most of our chemicals like, are basically what we would 
call sort of a quasi-closed transfer system. In other words, the farmer no longer sees the chemical or is in contact with the chemical. The tote has a hose attached to it. It might have even a dry connector, right? Um, and then you you just connect hoses that have valves on them and you don't glug or dis- or measure anything. I mean, you measure it, but it has yeah. there's a flow meter, right? But you're not getting exposed to this no. high concentration no. anymore. Not for the most part. There's still some products where you have jugs and you have to... You know, we call that we call that spiking. So you have a an inductor, you have a, a tank, a cone, a cone tank. You open the lid, and you take a closed jug. It has a lid on it, has a foil seal on it, and you don't even bother opening that. All you do is you spike it. It goes down onto a knife. It's a pointy knife, right? Breaks the bottom of the container open. Everything rushes out into the cone yeah, vessel, yeah. tank. And then you activate by hand a spray nozzle that sprays back up into the tank and completely rinses it out. And then you remove it. It's completely clean and you recycle it. Uh, Anything else? Yeah, that's more or less it. You can still glug a jug or you can, uh, (laughs) you can also, some some of the products are dry. So you, you might have to open a a container and, and uh, pour, pour a dry material into the inductor. Yeah. You'd have to do that. Sometimes uh, you put a fertilizer in for as a water conditioner, so you might have to open a bag. You know, yeah. you might cut a bag with a knife, and it's just fertilizer, just oh, a salt, right? I got gotcha. you. Yeah. When you were so, we have the top one is the atomization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've just covered the one. <laughs> yeah, we just covered. I know. <laughs> so, so now let's cover. It. Let's go with the second aspect. Yeah. Let's go with that. Well, I mean. You know, I mean, let's, 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 we, we, I just came off. I mean, we, we jumped a couple of steps. Yeah. Atomization is the end result. We, okay. we, we jumped at the beginning. So, I mean, what do you do is you, you fill your sprayer at the right concentration. You, you make sure it's got the right amount of water, right amount of chemical. It's agitated. You then just use a pump to pressurize it. And it flows out uh, from that pump t- through hoses to the boom, reaching each individual nozzle. And then the nozzles have a certain flow rate and you have a plan for how much water you're going to put down on that on that land, it might be say 10 gallons per acre, 10 US gallons per acre, and so that's all been predetermined. You've mixed it so that that concentration is the right concentration for 10 gallons per acre, and then you go at your predetermined speed and you drive up and down the field until that tank is empty, uh, maybe five rounds, and then you do it again. We just got to worry about the weather. Yeah, weather while you're spraying, weather after you're spraying. You know, it could rain. Rain fastest is an issue. Um, volatility is an issue, so you have to watch the weather forecast and make sure that you're you're clear for a while after you're done spraying. Oh, how so? It has to sit on for a certain amount of time for it to be effective. Different products have different rain fastness requirements. Yeah, mm-hmm. it could be as little as half an hour. It could be as much as two hours or three hours. So it, you have to watch the weather forecast. There's so much involved in this. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Tom, is there anything I haven't asked you? So much, but it's been great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, should we call it? (laughs) You got it.